Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360. And joining me now from New York is Law 360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, Jimmy. How are you doing? Pretty good, considering the circumstances. Just another week with the Supreme Court pretty much uh, ground to a halt at this point with the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Um, I guess we should probably get right into the the big news um, since we last recorded the episode, which is that the April 20th oral arguments, to the surprise of probably very few people, has now been indefinitely postponed. I, I think that brought a lot of tears to a lot of appellate lawyers. <laughs> um, this <laughs> well, week. probably some relief to some who like didn't feel like breathing on the justices because, you know, the lectern is pretty close to the bench there. That's true. That's true. Although I, I think there was some hope around uh, the commu- legal community that maybe Definitely. this would help push the court, you know, towards embracing some new technology. Uh, but doesn't doesn't seem to be happening. No, it doesn't, right? So now the court has, between the March oral argument session and the April session, there are 20 hearings, I should say. Some are consolidated, but 20 hearings that need to be um, rescheduled before the end of the term, which normally is in July. So the court says, um, if circumstances permit, in light of public health and safety guidance at that time, it'll reconsider scheduling some cases before the end of the term. And But it didn't really commit to doing so. And then it just says kind of vaguely... You know, the court will consider a range of scheduling options and other alternatives if arguments can't be held in the courtroom before the end of the term. So what does that tell you? (laughs) Can you can you read into that um, kind of vague language to just tell me, Natalie, what's going to happen with the rest of the term? I hear either they're going to maybe push back the end of the term a little bit, but I also hear a little bit of like, well, maybe they'll just read, do it on briefs, you know. Do it on the briefs. Yeah. yeah. Or just reset those cases for re-argument in the fall like That's they do sometimes. True. You know? That's true. That's yeah. true. I, I have a feeling that we'll be seeing kind of a mix of all those options. I, I think they're going to, you know, some cases are going to get just postponed. Some are going to be decided on briefs, etc. It definitely doesn't give a lot of, you know, it does, definitely doesn't inspire a lot of hope that the court is like really fast at work trying to get their like Zoom accounts up <laughs> so that they can, you know, get these, uh, you know, audio arguments on like, like you said, like so many yeah. other circuit courts have done. I mean, it, I remember when the, the, the announcement about April came down, um, some court watchers were pretty disappointed that the court hasn't really gotten it together and said, you know, this is how we're going to approach it instead of a, you know, a live oral argument, we're going to do it this way. Um, so, you know, uh, just a reminder that how, how slowly the court moves with some of these, you know, electronic technological developments. Well, I think it was you who was telling me just uh, the other day that, you know, they were like the last court to embrace even just putting audio up. Well, yeah, the audio's been there for a while, but but the electronic docket, electronic I mean, is something. Yeah, there was the electronic docket that's been so. Um, it, it took so long to come to the Supreme Court. I used to have to go to the court to actually fi- like thumb through all the paper filings. When at a time, this was just a few years ago, when every basically other federal court in the country had already had you know the the pacer, the the whole online um, electronic record system. So they got that up and running a, a couple years behind schedule in, in 2017. So, you know, a, a, a two-month turnaround for launching like live video streaming or audio streaming for oral arguments, I don't necessarily see the Supreme Court being able to do that. Well, while things still seem to be delayed uh, on the oral argument front, uh, the, the court is, uh, you know, 
moving along with its opinions uh, at a at a fairly steady trickle. There were three opinions that came down this week. Uh, the first one uh, we'll, we're going to talk about is actually a case we've uh, you know mentioned in the past, Kansas v. Glover. And for our listeners, um, you might remember this was a, a pretty big Fourth Amendment case um, involving someone who had been stopped uh, by a deputy uh, over a, a, who wanted to do a registration check, um, you know, and he had, you know, seen that this guy's, the vehicle's owner had a suspended license and he sp- suspected that the vehicle's owner was the one driving at the time. Uh, the owner, Charles Glover, uh, who was driving at the time, though, argued that that assumption was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um, in an 8-1 ruling, though, the the justices sided with uh, the deputy in this case. Uh, Justice Thomas, uh, writing from the majority, uh, basically said it was pretty common sense to to reasonably suspect that, you know, the individual driving was the one with the revoked license. Yeah, so the Supreme Court has held that, you know, in order to pull someone over for a traffic stop, you have to have like a reasonable suspicion of a crime taking place. So that's the standard under the Fourth Amendment. If there's no reasonable suspicion, then it's an unconstitutional stop. And so this whole thing was about whether, you know, when you assume that the uh, owner of a registered vehicle is the one driving because you see him having or her having a revoked license, you know, does that give that reasonable suspicion? Thomas, like you said, he says it's common sense, um, but d- Sotomayor disagreed, right? What did she have to say about it? Yeah, she was the lone dissent, and she warned that the decision could lead to demographic profiling. Now, Justice Elena Kagan um, also wrote a concurrence, and, and while she sided with the majority, she did note that had there been some different facts to the case, um, if Glover had had a suspended license for some reason other than the repeated driving infractions, um, that there might have been a different decision, at least for her, uh, under this this case. Yeah, this is one that maybe seems like it's a narrow fact pattern, but uh, as you know, for instance, Justice Neil Gorsuch pointed out that as like ride sharing apps and things like that become more prevalent, you're gonna have more cases where the drivers of cars aren't the actual registered owners, and so you know, under this new Supreme Court ruling, police officers are gonna have a little bit more leeway to just assume that there's um, something like a crime b- taking place if if the registered owner of a say like a Turo. Um, rental car is uh, they have a revoked license those people could be pulled over so that's 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 an interesting one um, the court also ruled Monday in a case called Bab versus Wilkie we're kind of changing gears here but this is a, a case involving the age discrimination in employment act so I don't know if you remember the okay boomer case oh how can we forget Chief Justice <laughs> Roberts making all the headlines yeah that was pretty surprising to see him kind of deploy uh, some of the latest internet slang and memes uh, in oral arguments in the case. But it's uh, the boomer in this case won. Um, <laughs> the court said that uh, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act allows federal workers to sue over any age bias that creeps into an adverse employment action, and not just in cases where that bias is the determining factor behind a decision. So the big picture here is that it's going to be a little bit easier for federal employees who want to sue for age discrimination to sue. 
obviously it was good news for for the person at the center of the suit, which was and who was Norris Babb, uh, a clinical pharmacist uh, from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. You know, she she had argued that she'd been stripped of her advanced certification and denied a transfer and training opportunities and, and even shorted holiday pay because she was a woman over 40. Um, and, and the 11th Circuit had previously, you know, ruled against her. Uh, so this decision from the Supreme Court vacates uh, that dismissal of her lawsuit. Yeah, the 11th Circuit had adopted this standard where under the Age Discrimination Employment Act, um, a plaintiff had to show that this adverse employment action wouldn't have happened but for the you know illegal age bias in this case. And the Supreme Court basically said on Monday that that's too demanding of a standard in that even if a plaintiff shows that age bias was mo- somehow motivated or factored into the ultimate um, employment action, like a firing or getting passed over for a promotion or something like that, um, then that is you know, grounds for a claim under this provision of the statute that applies to federal workers. Now, the court was pretty clear that, you know, some of the relief in the case that would be available to someone who met that higher standard of but-for causation, where um, age bias was like the basically determining factor. Um, So the relief in that case would be a little bit more compelling, like a compensatory damages or maybe like a reinstatement of their position. But um, Justice Alito said in his opinion that other relief would be available if, if it was a motivating factor um, in the employment action. Um, I think he says like an injunction or other forward-looking um, relief would be available to a plaintiff um, in that case. But of course, they didn't say whether Bab met this new standard that they had now announced. Um, so this case is going to go back to the 11th Circuit and where Bab will probably try and keep litigating her case if it doesn't get uh, settled somehow. Now, those were the two big opinions, right, to come down uh, on, on Monday from from previous oral arguments. But it was a per curiam opinion, I think, that made the biggest headlines uh, this week. Absolutely. Monday evening, after most of us were pretty much logged off of our of our work days, um, the Supreme Court came down with a bombshell five to four ruling about Wisconsin's Tuesday elections. So the court said that it was reversing a district court order that extended absentee ballots um, so that people could mail in and not have to show up to the polls amid the ongoing coronavirus cover, uh, 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 pandemic. So the district court had kind of given the relief to some some voters who were had filed a lawsuit basically saying that the COVID, there need to be some kind of COVID-19 um, uh, contingency plans to go on with this election. Um, and so the district court said, OK, we're going to give you until six days after the election to mail-in absentee ballots so you don't have to actually show up to the polls. Now, um, Republicans appealed this uh, district court order all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and the Supreme Court agreed and said that, you know, the the, the district court was wrong to give this type of relief um, just because it's a pandemic shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't throw out the book and kind of just start improvising on how they're going to deal with this ongoing public health crisis. Um, and so they said that the conservative majority, I should say, in a per curiam opinion, they said that uh, uh, absentee voters will have to mail in and postmark their ballots by the day, by I think around 4 p.m. Um, or something like that in the afternoon of Tuesday, the election. This was this past Tuesday. 
The problem, of course, was that thousands of voters had not yet received their absentee ballots because there was obviously a huge backlog with the number of people requesting them given the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. And so you had a very bitter um, dissent on the part of Justice Ginsburg, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who said that the conservative majority's decision boggles the mind and she feared it would, quote, lead to massive uh, voter disenfranchisement. Yeah, there was a lot, I think, of blowback, at least, you know, on the popular cultural level uh, over this decision. Um, The next day, right afterwards, you know, there's a lot of media reports where you saw voters in mass waiting on lines and and trying to get their vote registered. Um, And it certainly attracted, I think, a, a very partisan critique of the court. Um, after this this decision came down. The optics were not very good, right? So you had this conservative majority ruling one way. Of course, all Republican appointees um, siding with uh, the Republican National Committee in their, in their lawsuit. Um, and then you had the four Democratic appointees siding the other way. I mean, it was a perfect 5-4 classic split like we saw in Bush v. Gore. Um, and so the optics were not good, um, followed by the fact that you know, a lot of the reporting on the ground in Wisconsin showed that there were actual people, not just theoretical, not just on a on a on a Supreme Court opinion here or a dissent that literally had to make the decision between going to the polls or and and kind of risking, you know, the long lines and the close contact and touching a screen that other people had touched and staying home and not being able to cast a vote. And so The Supreme Court has come under tremendous fire for this ruling, um, which they have kind of staked in what they say is kind of a narrow technical ruling. But of course, you know, the Supreme or the broader public doesn't necessarily care about the fine fine tooth comb you know, reading of the the individual provisions of the statutes that the the court says it's looking at, they just see this um, situation where a lot of people are being forced to decide um, whether to vote or protect themselves. Now, Jamie, you wrote, I think, a pretty interesting piece about um, how the decision seems to show that, you know, the crisis isn't unifying the Supreme Court. I know you're you're, you're basically talking about that uh, right now, just the partisan coloring of this decision. Um, what did you hear from some of the, the sources you, you spoke to for that story? Well, I think what people are looking for in the Supreme Court is some kind of semblance of nonpartisanship, you know, at a time when uh, the country is facing such a dire crisis in the form of uh, coronavirus. They want their Supreme Court, their, their um, top judicial tribunal, if you will, um, to kind of rise above the partisan fray. Um, and so the optics of this five to four split, bitter as we've seen in, in so many other cases, just was not very good. And the implication was that this crisis is not bridging those deep, deep ideological divide between the conservative and liberal blocks of the court. And, you know, there's the potential that other litigation involving coronavirus will make its way up to the court. There's an ongoing showdown over abortion brewing in the fifth and sixth uh, circuit um, that has the potential to 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 to, to sow a, a similar divide. Now, that's from uh, some states moving to restrict abortion procedure, procedures during the crisis, right? Yeah, so in some Republican 
um, controlled states in response to coronavirus have moved to limit um, abortion access, uh, saying excluding abortion from the types of essential surgeries and medical procedures that can continue um, during this pandemic. And that's some, um, you know, legal challenges by providers, which have weighed their, made their way up through the court system. And so, for instance, the Sixth Circuit held that uh, Ohio's uh, similar restrictions on abortion during the coronavirus pandemic um, is a violation of, you know, uh, the constitutional right to abortion that the court found in the, in the case Roe versus Wade, whereas the Fifth Circuit has so far come to kind of completely the opposite um, view of Texas's abortion restrictions, saying that, you know, it pretty much serves the, the, the state's public stated public policy goals of preserving vital medical resources for, you know, the, the pandemic. And, and so you have kind of this burgeoning split. Now, of course, the providers after that Fifth Circuit ruling have gone back down to the district court. So they haven't immediately appealed that Fifth Circuit ruling to the Supreme Court. But as this conflict kind of simmers and, and, and continues to uh, percolate is the word that a lot of uh, uh, lawyers use for when circuits come to different opinions. Uh, you could potentially see the Supreme Court weighing in. Um, and then it would be another case where Chief Justice Roberts would be stuck in that position that he hates right in the center of the court having to decide um, what to do. And it's just just abortion from from uh, what I was reading uh I know the Puerto Rico. There's a. I know there's also a lot of litigation kind of percolating over just everyone's personal liberties, perhaps being, um, you know, infringed upon by all these pretty restrictive measures. Uh, I know in Puerto Rico there's been a lawsuit filed um, by the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, um, that's been challenging the the territory's kind of aggressive. Uh, measures to combat coronavirus, which have included, you know, curfews and mask wearing requirements. And we've seen mask wearing requirements kind of be be spreading throughout the U.S. Like, uh, this past week over the, these last few days. I know here in New York, uh, you know, it's been encouraged uh, quite a bit. And I think I've seen some instances in Texas as well. Um, you know, there's there's supermarkets, I think, that are like saying if you don't wear some sort of face covering, you can't come in. Um, so I, I have to imagine there's going to be a lot of these kind of cases just working their way up through the system to, to the Supreme Court. Oh, absolutely. I mean, civil liberties lawsuits are are just springing out of the woodwork now. You have the challenge in New York, um, for instance, to the state's um, restrictions of, of gun stores um, during the, the pandemic. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There are um, kind of infinite, um, you know, ways in which that some of these prickly legal questions could make their way before the justices. But uh, so far, um, the implication from the court's Monday ruling is that uh, it's going to be business as usual in terms of the kind of ideological breakdown on the court. So, Well, we'll see uh, just what other business comes out of the court next week. Um, I think that just about does it for us today. Jimmy, it's been great chatting with you. I hope you and all our listeners uh, continue to stay safe. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.